You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Happy New Year, EBF family. My name is Tim, and I have the privilege of helping shepherd this flock here as lead pastor. And we hope you had a great Christmas and New Year's, even though it probably didn't look as you uh, would have expected necessarily. And I know mine Mine was like that too. Not the way we would probably draw it up, but a special thanks goes to our very own Ryan Fields for opening up Colossians 1, 3 through 14 last week and reminding us of the fruitful gospel. And here we are at the beginning of a new year with a fresh start and new possibilities. My prayer for us is that God will continue to capture our hearts and our imaginations with the unity in Christ that we now have with God and with one another as revealed in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is all about the unity of the church in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, according to God's providential plan. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 3, focus on the cosmic unity we have with our God and King because of what Christ has done definitively on our behalf. But it also associates for the second half of the book, the horizontal unity we have with one another, that is highlighted in chapters 4 through 6. I know it's been a little while, but think back to Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. And what we discovered is that we were hopelessly alienated from God and one another. But through the cross, Christ has radically reconciled us to God and to one another, creating one new people in himself. We were in need of heart surgery, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world, and we're far off. But Christ shed his blood on the cross. He embodied and made peace. He took Jewish and Gentile believers and made us one, broke down the dividing wall and reconciled us to God. He who embodied peace and made peace preached peace to those who are far and those who are near, and he has granted us access to the Father together. The barriers have been obliterated. And instead of creating or maintaining human barriers, we are to pursue Christ together. And by doing that, that cultivates unity and diversity. What Christ has done should cause us to rejoice and to continue preaching peace, as he did, preaching peace to those who are near and far. Once more, Paul takes up this who you were and who you are now contrast but he places the emphasis on the new community to which we now belong. Would you join me in prayer? 
Father, we look to you here at the beginning of a new year. We pray that you would keep our faith fixed firmly upon you, and that you would use your life-giving word to, to challenge us, to speak to us, to remind us of Christ, our cornerstone, your words of truth, and how you are building us up into something glorious. Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. What comes to mind when people hear the word church? For some, they might immediately think of a cathedral-like building with towers and stained glass. For others, it might conjure up images of a service with maybe lots of standing up and sitting down and kneeling. Or perhaps clergy in, in all black with their white collars. I guess I don't necessarily fit the type, but you don't have to look very far, even on TV and film, to see these, the uh, depictions and the attitudes surrounding the church. For some, it can also bring up painful images, perhaps of past hurts that they've had in churches, or even the hypocrisy of those who claim to be people of faith but live in a way that's very different from that. I have no doubt that it would be an incredibly revealing exercise to go out and to ask those around us what comes to mind when they hear the word church. But what does scripture have to say about what the church is? And how does this challenge not only popular perceptions of the church in our culture, but even the ways that as Christians we can end up viewing the church as well? And that's what we encounter here in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And in light of everything that Paul has just laid out in verses 11 through 18 about Gentile believers moving from alienation to reconciliation through Christ's finished work on the cross, Paul now traces out key implications of what it means to be the new people that have been created in Christ. And he does this by using three inspiring images, three inspiring images that emphasize the unity that Jewish and Gentile believers now enjoy in Christ. If verses 11 through 13 reveal who we were, and verses 13 through 18 describe what Christ has done, verses 19 through 22 answer the question, who have we now become? And so let's take up each one of those, of those three inspiring images. The first, we are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Anchored in our transference from alienation to reconciliation in verses 11 through 18, Paul begins here in verse 19 by saying, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Once more, Paul directs this primarily toward Gentile believers in and around Ephesus. And in Ephesians 2, verse 12, earlier, he wrote along these same lines and saying, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here in this passage is the third time Paul now uses the formerly but now structure in Ephesians. 
And the word for strangers here has to do with with foreigners. These are short-term transients that have no rights or privileges. That's kind of the background of that particular word. And then the word for aliens is a similar word, but it refers to non-citizens who then settle down in a particular region, but have limited rights. The word for aliens here is actually the first of six words in just these four short verses that are derived from the Greek word oikos, which means home. I'll point those out as we go along, but it's, it's really interesting to see how Paul weaves these thoughts together. We were formerly strangers and aliens, but now we are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. Here Paul is writing at the zenith of of Roman power. And Roman citizenship forms the backdrop of this powerful image. Being a citizen meant full rights and protections and the privileges that went along with it. And at times Paul would would emphasize his Roman citizenship in order to advance the gospel. But Paul envisions the reality of our fellow citizenship among the saints as more magnificent than any earthly empire. And so he writes in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of a new heavenly reality, the kingdom of God. This kingdom has no geographical boundaries. It is not marked off here on earth. It has to do with God's reign and rule over his people. It is present in the person and in the teachings of Jesus Christ. But there's another dynamic to this. We are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. This is the first of three words in this passage that begin with the prefix S-Y-N. This is what we get the word sync from. These words show how we are synced with Christ. The other two with or together words that are in this passage are the word for joined together in verse 21 and built together in verse 22. But we are fellow citizens. In God's kingdom, we are not primarily Jewish or Gentile. We are fellow citizens, citizens together, citizens with one another in a revolutionary multi-ethnic reality. We are fellow citizens among the saints, among the holy ones, the people of God, through all generations. And so there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Every follower of Jesus Christ is a full citizen, entitled to all of the rights and privileges and protections that are extended to us by the king himself. We are what we might call supernaturalized citizens. Our passports are written in Christ's blood. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit himself. And because there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom, no one should be treated like one, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally. This should cause us to evaluate our own church community and the ways that we end up perhaps devaluing one another, the words we use that might have unintended consequences, and the signals we send sometimes when we, it may seem like we rank certain gifts or certain roles as more important or over others. But there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. A second takeaway in, in reflecting on how we are fellow citizens 
in God's kingdom is that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. Our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. Our citizenship is in God's kingdom before any earthly nation. Our loyalty is to Christ before any earthly leader. Our affiliation is to the body of Christ before any political party. Our identity is in Christ, not in in an ideology. I fear too many Christians have made patriotism their religion, pin their hope on electing their candidate, demonize the party that is not theirs, or place their identity in ideologies that are other than the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, our citizenship, being in God's kingdom, should not lead us to have what we might call an escapist mentality or an earth-forsaking attitude. Our ultimate allegiance being to Christ and his kingdom should motivate us to participate in his kingdom flourishing on earth as it is in heaven. After all, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Here's the second inspiring image. We are full members of God's family. Paul shifts the metaphor and continues there in the rest of verse 19 when he says, and members of the household of God. As wonderful as citizenship is, being family is an even deeper level of intimacy. The word for members of the household here is the second of those six oikos words that I mentioned. And it means belonging to the house. Elsewhere, Paul uses this term to refer to the church as the household of faith in Galatians 6. It is a term of togetherness, of closeness, a term of of inclusion. Those who were formerly without God, Ephesians 2.12, are now part of the very household of God. And because of Christ's finished work on the cross, Jews and Gentiles alike now enjoy access to God the Father through Christ in one spirit. Earlier in Ephesians 1.5, Paul underscores the spiritual blessing of being adopted into the family of God. And so like citizenship, being a part of the family means we are full members, that we are sons and daughters, that we share all of the rights and privileges and are co-heirs alongside our elder brother, Jesus himself. Being full members of God's family should shape our identity. This is what gives us security and provides a sense of belonging as well. I find family time particularly sweet. And that family time over the holidays was a place where you know, I could let my guard down. I could be myself. You know, fall asleep on the floor in a food coma and no one bats an eye. I don't always see eye to eye with my family members, but that doesn't change the fact that we're family who love one another and accept one another. And so, church, a takeaway for us to consider is that we are family. Should just have Jeff cue the music right there. <laughs> we are family. The most common term for Christians in the New Testament is brothers and sisters. We are full members of God's family, and that goes across generations too. This stands in stark contrast to the, 
the conflicts and the fault lines that cause disintegration in our society. We are to bring people together into one united and loving family. This also means that we have responsibilities toward one another. We have, and there are respective roles to fulfill within the family as well. But admittedly, though, some of us bear great pain because of our earthly families. We may not have had the best of examples when it comes to these familial relationships. But this image here that Paul uses of the church should cause us to behave like families should, to respect and appreciate one another, to show affection and kindness toward each other, to sacrifice for one another, to be there through thick and thin, to offer warmth and support throughout life's joys and sorrows. At the end of the day, family members care for one another, are committed to each other, and lovingly confront each other even when needed, and sustain one another through tough times. Our worship, too, should be shaped by this sense of family. I know this has been a real trial during COVID, but we, we need one another, and we, we need to find creative ways to love and to continue caring for and supporting each other. Not only, not only are we family, but Christians ultimately should belong to a church. Church membership is implied in this language here. Belonging to a church is not some, some add-on. It is not optional. And we shouldn't treat church like a hotel where we check in every once in a while and tip if we feel like we received good service. No, we are family. We are members of God's household. Church membership is seen in various ways in the New Testament, not only in the lists that they kept, the process of church discipline, the times in which we see the the church coming together and expressing consensus on a decision, or even in the ways that they knew the flock so that they might shepherd the flock. But the process of becoming a member is not dictated in Scripture. The different churches use different processes to do that. But in our context here, a A simple next step is in attending our membership gathering, the next one taking place on January 10th. If you'd like to do that, we highly encourage you to um, reach out to Danny and he can get uh, get you connected to that next membership gathering. But there are no Lone Ranger Christians. Instead, we are invested sojourners together, investing our lives for Christ and his church at every point in our journey toward home. We are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We are full members of God's family, and we are living stones in God's temple. In verse 20, the metaphor shifts once again. And I might just add here that Paul had a tendency, has a tendency to do that, to kind of shift metaphors to suit the needs and to express what he what he believes the people there in and around Ephesus needed to hear. And so he does that once more, starting in verse 20, when he writes, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In these verses here, we are given four key elements of God's temple. The foundation, the cornerstone, 
the construction process and the purpose. So first, the foundation. Paul writes, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The word for built on here is the sixth of those oikos words in this passage. And it's difficult to determine the relationship here between the foundation and the apostles and prophets, but it is most likely the foundation consisting of the apostles apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets make up that very foundation. It's tempting, too, to view the prophets here as, as Old Testament prophets, but it seems as though Paul is referring to one foundational group of New Testament apostles and prophets who have a unique relationship with Christ. He's going to use this phrase in a similar way in, in chapter 3, verse 5, but These are the first, these apostles and prophets are the first to receive and proclaim God's revelation in Christ. They have communicated authoritative teachings about Christ to the church through his life-giving word. We all know the importance of a solid foundation, especially when looking to buy a home. For Danielle and I, it it was hard doing our home search from a distance and we got to the place where we thought we had found a winner. Thankfully, we made a, a trip in to town in September to take a look at the place, but quickly discovered some significant issues with the home's foundation, among other issues as well. But just as it is vital for structures to have a solid foundation, the church must remain founded upon the truth of God's word. Here at EBF, we hold to humble orthodoxy. We firmly hold to the truth while gently and lovingly proclaiming it. We are rooted in the teachings of Scripture and must allow it to form and constantly reform our practices. One such biblical practice we continue is one we will be celebrating later today. That is the Lord's Supper. We must allow Scripture to form and constantly reform our practices. And just as a foundation cannot be tampered with without affecting the structural integrity of the building, so we must not tamper with God's complete, authoritative, life-giving word through additions, subtractions, modifications, and minimizations. John Stott writes this. He says, The church stands or falls by its loyal dependence, by its loyal dependence on the foundation truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets, and which are now preserved in the New Testament scriptures. So, the foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Second element of the structure is the cornerstone. In verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's like Paul here highlights highlights, stars, and underlines Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In ancient structures, the cornerstone was the the huge stone at the corner of the foundation. One such stone found in Palestine weighed 570 tons. It often had an inscription on it with, with the ruler who took credit for putting up that impressive edifice. It was the first stone laid, too, and was used to then make sure that the whole structure was stable and square. It was vital for the placement of the rest of the foundation and the stones and the structure because everything went out from it and up from it as well. The point is that God's temple, 
is built out and up from Christ. Christ is the cornerstone on whom everything is built. There's some significant and rich Old Testament background to this word as well. In Psalm 118, verse 22, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then in Isaiah 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Peter then makes the connection strongly in Acts 4.11. When, when he confronted the religious leaders in that setting, he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And so, church, Christ must be our cornerstone. Everything must be built upon Christ and be supported by Christ and be shaped by Christ. Everything crumbles without him like a building in the first century, depended on the cornerstone for its cohesion and for its construction. So Christ, as our cornerstone, is crucial to both our unity and our growth. It all starts with him, and it all ends with him. Everything, all things, he must have first place in all things. So the foundation, the cornerstone, and then the construction in verse 21. Verse 21 says, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The word for structure here is the fourth of those six oikos words. Paul uses them as building blocks in the construction of this passage. And he places the emphasis here on coherence and construction of the entire structure. And that taking place together. But in using the word grows, he actually spills into organic language. It's like a shifting of the metaphor once more, or a metaphor within the metaphor. It's like the movie Inception happening in this passage. This is a a living organism. It is a work in progress. Similar to what he says in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, where he uses the analogy of the body to refer to the church. We're going to take that up here in a few weeks, but he writes, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What we are formed into is nothing less than a holy temple in the Lord. We've seen temple imagery in the background of Ephesians 2, particularly in verses 13 to 14 and verse 18 as well. The Ephesians themselves were, this would have been on their minds as they were the keepers of the magnificent temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This would have been a powerful image among those who had previously participated in these rituals to Artemis, but whose allegiance had now been been changed and and transferred to Christ. In a similar way, the temple in Jerusalem was the focal point of Israel. This would have been a vivid metaphor for Jewish believers as well. As one united people of God, they are now joined together and growing together into the true temple, God's holy temple. And it is all in the Lord. It all exists in Christ. 
during our 10th anniversary trip, the summer of uh, 2019, we got to do a, a European cruise. We were on the, uh, on the Mediterranean, visited Spain and France and Italy. Uh, that just seems so foreign in this day and age, the whole notion of cruising, traveling, all of those things. But in Barcelona, we got to visit the magnificent Sagrada Familia. If you've never seen it before, it is amazing. It is a large, unfinished cathedral that has been under construction since 1882. It is truly a breathtaking with all of its beautiful facades and the even more impressive and soaring interior. But the truth is that even as impressive as it is, it pales in comparison to God's holy temple in Christ. But it was a powerful remember to me of how we are a work in progress. Construction takes time. The church is dynamic. It is in the continuous process of expansion. And this growth is both quantitative, as more stones are added, and it is also qualitative, as then those stones are joined together into one common life. At the same time, we must remember that we are the temple of God corporately. We are joined together. The divisions have been done away with. The barriers have been smashed to smithereens. And admittedly, we are often clouded by our our own individualistic thinking. But here we are the temple of God corporately. There are no lone ranger Christians. That whole notion is completely foreign to the New Testament. We belong together and are joined together in God's holy temple in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul, Paul puts it in a different way. He says, He says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so from the foundation to the cornerstone, to the construction and then the purpose in verse 22. It says this, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By the Spirit. Being built together is the fifth oikos word, and dwelling place is the sixth. They kind of come rapid fire here at the end of the at the end of the passage. But notice how being built together, as well as being joined together earlier, are both passive. This is not accomplished by us. God is the one cohering and constructing. We are like living stones in the hands of the master builder. Peter writes as such in in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, when he writes, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our purpose is to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit to be the place where God dwells. This has a wonderful Trinitarian shape to it here at the end of the passage. We experience the presence of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And so church, we do not build the church. Join together, build together. These are passive verbs. It is not the church's own doing that causes the increase or builds the structure upward. 
It is God's power at work through Christ. This is what builds a holy temple. This is what is suitable for worshiping the holy God. And second takeaway, God now dwells in the church by his spirit. God fulfilled his promise in a person. The temple took on human flesh, human form, when God became flesh and tented, tabernacled among us, as John 1.14 reminds us. This temple was where the ultimate sacrifice was made when Christ shed his blood on the cross. And now God dwells in the church by his spirit. And so here's the bottom line. We who are fellow citizens in God's kingdom, full members of God's family, and living stones in God's temple, must remain anchored in Christ, founded on God's word, and under construction together in the hands of the master builder. The church is not restricted to any location or any physical structure. God's presence is worldwide. It is wherever faithful followers of Jesus Christ are found. And access is not restricted on the basis of race or ethnicity or class or gender. All who come to Christ are equally part of God's temple. God dwells wherever his people dwell. That means we need one another. We are to be a beautiful, multi-ethnic temple that is founded upon Christ and rooted in the teachings of Scripture. And so instead of a building, we are a people. Instead of an institution, we are citizens of God's kingdom. Instead of a loose affiliation, we are full members of God's family. Instead of a relic of the past, we are a growing and dynamic temple of the Lord. What other images does Scripture use to illustrate the church? What else comes to mind? Perhaps the body of Christ in Ephesians 1. The bride of Christ, as we will see in Ephesians 5. The flock of God in Acts 20. Or the vine and branches image that Jesus uses in John 15. These are certainly captivating images that are worth exploring. I encourage all of us to do so. Even in our ethos communities, to sink our teeth into the various images that Scripture uses to describe our new life together in the community of disciples. O oh, church, we who are fellow citizens in God's kingdom, full members of God's family, and living stones in God's temple must remain anchored in Christ, founded in God's word, and under construction together in the hands of the master builder. For as Jesus told us, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for these captivating images here in Ephesians 2 that remind us of what it means to be a part of your covenant community. And Father, would these not just be words on a page? Would these not just be conceptual images? Oh Lord, but would you help us to live out these realities with one another? Help us to dwell upon our citizenship being in your kingdom. Help us to treat one another as family in the body of Christ. And, oh, Lord, thank you that we are still, we recognize, that though, that we are under construction. We are a work in progress. 
And so we pray that you would continue to do that work, chiseling away at us, forming us more and more into the image of Christ. And would we together image you well? For you are our rock. You are our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.